Well, good morning and welcome to Sedaris. Uh, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, in the spirit of honesty, I did not believe Dave could do it. But as a good brother, I encouraged him to try. So, and he did great. He did great. Um, yeah, I have no story about my plaid shirt. Um, but hey, that's okay. We're here. If you brought your Bible, go ahead and pull it out. Turn it over to Acts 15. That's where we're going to be. If you didn't bring a Bible, you have some place downs at the ends of your rows. Go ahead and pick that one up and open it up to Acts 15. Uh, the book of Acts is behind the four gospel accounts of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which start about three quarters of the way through the Bible. And so um, if you hit one of those, just keep on turning right until you hit the book of Acts. Or as always, there's no shame in using the table contents to find it, okay? Acts 15, Acts 15. Well, this morning, uh, I'm actually going to start by bringing us all back to um, a formative time of our lives called middle school. Middle school. Um, maybe you guys have gone through this experience, uh, the experience of middle school, uh, an awkward time in many of our lives, probably most of our lives, um, especially for me. I mean, I mean, some of you know me, and you're like, that guy's awkward to relate with. He's 30 now. <laughs> Imagine what he was like when he was 13. Uh, but no, I've grown. I've grown a lot, actually. Man. Um, but why are we talking about middle school? Well, we're talking about middle school because every day I actually encounter middle schoolers. Uh, I pick up my daughter Lucy from the Wallingford Boys and Girls Club, which is just right up here on 45th. And um, there's a middle school program there, and they all hang out in the schoolyard, and all the parents have to walk through said schoolyard to go pick their children up. And so every day I walk through about 10 to 15 middle schoolers, and there's, uh, often there's like something obnoxious happening. Sometimes I get, I get hit in the head with a basketball, or that happened once. Uh, other times it's just like legs or something minor. Um, sometimes it's, it's not that bad, you know? Uh, sometimes it's pretty calm in there. But there is a, um, a constant. There's a constant that happens every single day, and that's this. It is dripping with insecurity, <laughs> right? Do you remember that in your middle school years? Like, you can almost just wring it out of the air as you walk through the Wallingford schoolyard on any given day. Well, and I, th I mean, I had this when I was in, in middle school. I was like super insecure. I know that uh, many of you may have as well. I think it's a common experience for middle schoolers, whether they're loud and obnoxious or quiet and reserved. It's a time of insecurity for us. And um, I mean, don't get me wrong, there's a lot of great things that happen in middle school as well. This is where I found some of my new friends. We went to restaurants together, the movies together. Uh, we, we, like, we laughed and cried together, honestly. You know, like a lot of great things happen in middle school. Uh, you're part of like the secondary education system, which is geared towards uh, this nebulous college thing that's coming up and a career afterwards, so that's new. Your body's changing with the onset of puberty, like a whole new social world is opened up to us, right? And, and all these new things can create some insecurity. But what we need to really grasp that happens in these teenage years, and more and more studies are finding this, is that it's not just the encounter with new things that creates insecurity in, in uh, teenagers. It's actually, as they encounter these new things, they are wrestling with questions of identity in light of them. So for example, they are not the, the, the crisis of insecurity doesn't necessarily come because they're, they're wrestling with, what am I experiencing? Why am I experiencing this? Instead, it's coming about because they're asking questions of, how do I belong in light of this experience that I've just gone through? 
Who am I in light of this experience? Why am I even here in light of this experience that I've gone through? So there's this insecurity that is really, uh, really tied to identity that we go through in middle school. Now, now why am I bringing up all of this middle school insecurity, identity stuff? Well, it's because in Acts chapter 15, the church hits its awkward middle school phase. The church in Acts chapter 15 is 15 years old at this point, and all of a sudden, it experiences something new. Lots of people are joining it, which isn't new in and of itself. The church has been gaining ground for about 15 years now. Um, it's, so about, for about 15 years, it's been gaining more and more people. But this new thing, it's gaining people that aren't Jewish primarily. This latest wave of converts to the way are, are Gentiles, brought on by this new um, missionary journey that Dave talked about over these last two weeks in Acts 13 and Acts 14. And as a result, it's thrown into insecurity. It is struggling with questions of identity. And this is crucial for us because I'd use a lot of words to describe the church in Seattle, and one of them would be insecure. One of the words that I would use to describe the church in Seattle is insecure. We live in what I would call a post-Christian context, which means this, that every day um, we come into contact with many people who have either uh, never been connected to Jesus or who aren't connected to Jesus and are living their life based on a different, you could say, code or uh, different uh, motivations in order to find happiness and fulfillment in life here in this world. Every day we come into contact with alternatives to Christianity, every day. And in turn, what I've come to see as what it means to be a Christian in Seattle is uh, to chronically doubt that we have it figured out, that we've actually arrived at the best alternative to what it means to live a, a happy, fulfilling, and satisfying life. Um, also, it means to maybe leave uh, the, the Christian, uh, leave the the things that we know that Jesus has called us to in this world, to perhaps try out these other alternatives here and there, even though we kind of know, like, I think this is really um, not exactly Jesus's directives for what he would say how to live a full life. And so this is, creates these insecurities within us that we have when we encounter these new things, and I think it's forcing us to ask questions of identity, which is good, which is important, because we need to ask these questions and we need to have them answered. I mean, that's why we're doing things like the gospel class, which we'll come back to here in a minute. And so today we're going to look at how the, <laughs> the insecure church of Acts 15 can help our insecurity. The questions that they answered surrounding their identity can really answer the questions that we have about our identity. How do we belong? Who are we why are we even here? This is what the Jerusalem Council answers for us, okay? And so this, this sermon's really addressed towards, I mean, I feel these things too. This is not just a preacher being like, you guys are all insecure. This, this sermon, I, I want to address this to me, myself, and then Sedaris Church, and then even more broadly, the city of Seattle. How do we belong? Who are we? Why are we here? This Jerusalem Council is going to help us, okay? So let's set the scene here. Um, of where the Jerusalem Council, why it actually happened. Um, we're actually going to skip back a few verses into 14 because back in 14 we actually see uh, Paul and Barnas, Barnabas come home from their successful trip. Okay, pick it up in verse 24. 
1424, then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. So literally, this is, they go back to the church that commended them, that sent them out, okay, that sent them out on this mission to go preach the gospel to the Gentiles. You hear that ringing? It's, it's kind of ringing, it's over. Um, <clears throat> And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them. Very interesting term. And how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. <clears throat> so they had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. That's the new thing that's happened. But some men came, from, came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So they encounter this new thing. Lots of Gentiles enter the church, and all of a sudden, they're thrown into questions of identity. Hey, if, if we're not Jewish, what are we? How do we belong if we're not Jewish. This is the questions that they were asking. We see that insecurity is starting to follow here. They get into a big fight. It's, it's worded really funny. And after no small dissension and debate, meaning they had a big fight, maybe a couple of them, people come in and say, all these new Gentiles, they have to be circumcised and hold to the whole Jewish law in order to be saved. And they fight about it. And the fight gets so big that they need mom and dad to settle it. They say, let's go to Jerusalem. We need to talk to the apostles, the people who are with Jesus. We need to talk to the elders. We need to go to mom and dad because we can't settle this among ourselves. Okay, and so the, and this creates the Jerusalem council. And the broad brushstrokes of this council go like this. They bring up the debate and the tension. And then Peter kind of steps up and answers the question of how people belong to the people of God. He answers that question of identity. How do people belong? And then James steps up. He's actually the formal leader. You could say you could call him the senior leader of the Jerusalem church. He steps up and he answers the questions of who are we as the people of God and why are we here? And they eventually conclude that the Gentiles don't have to follow all the, all, every single part of the law, but instead they just need to follow probably four broad brushstrokes just so that everybody can get along and eat together, essentially. <laughs> okay. And so what we're actually going to focus on are those uh, answers to the questions of identity that are found in Peter and James's dialogue here, because these are actually what's most important for us as a church, okay? Because really as a church, we need to answer these questions of identity for us and not so much worry about the exact missiology that came out of their council, although that is important. It's probably just another sermon for another time, all right? Okay. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to focus on these things in the council. But before we dive into it, I want to unpack something for you here that's happened in these first verses. Because we're tempted to look at the church, this immature middle school, we're in a middle school, lots of uh, immaturity and insecurity happen in this place all week. We're tempted to look at this insecure middle school church and be like, oh, there the church goes again. It's arguing, it's fighting, it can't agree on anything. Gosh, if the church could just get it together. Actually, we're still a middle school church, aren't we? But in reality, this is the church operating exactly how it should. And that kind of rubs us the wrong way. So in order for me to kind of prove that to you, you have to talk about a big term. 
And it, it, it's called this. It's called missiology. This is missiology happening. That's a big word. Let me illustrate it by what's happening here. What has happened here is God has done something through Paul and Barnabas in the mission field somewhere else that's created an uncomfortable reality for people to live in. Okay, and that uncomfortable reality for, for people, for probably a lot of the church, not just a few people that came up from Jerusalem, because they go down there, and then the, the, the debate explodes all over again, is what we're going to see. That uncomfortable reality leads to an uncomfortable discussion. No small, discuss, no small dissension or debate. And that uncomfortable dissension and debate provides the church with the opportunity to answer questions of identity. Okay, so this is actually pretty cool. This is exactly how the church is supposed to work. It goes from mission to uncertainty to clarity, okay? And we're going to see that happen here in the Jerusalem Council. It's a really cool opportunity, and this is why we're doing new things here at Sedaris. This is why we're so happy that 15 of you raised your hands and said, yeah, I want to be part of the gospel class. I want to join those other 15 people in the gospel class. Because this gospel class that we've created isn't just theology. It isn't just good ideas about God. It's missiology. Over the course of our time here in, in Seattle, we've been here for three and a half years, we've seen a lot of different things, a lot of different ways that Christians have conceived of their identity in Christ. A lot of different ways. We've seen a lot of people wrestle with new ideas, with new things. We've seen a lot of people experience a lot of opposition and over those three and a half years, we have gotten to sit down with people and talk about those things. We've been able to have, um, I guess you could say, dissensions and debates that were large. Most of them are pretty small. <laughs> but we have been able to use those as opportunities to create clarity about who we are as a church. And we packed it into three weeks. And so all this stuff that is going to be in the gospel class, there's still room if you want to join. All this stuff that's in there is, is not just truth about God. It's very Seattle-specific. It's very Pacific Northwest. What are people struggling with up here in the gospel class? And so that's why we're doing the gospel class. We, it's, it's, it comes out of three and a half years of mission. It's not just these cool ideas that Dave and I kind of jotted on a piece of paper, although we're good at that too. But anyways. And so, th and so this is why we're also, at, we're also going to be asking people to membership this fall. We're also going to be asking people who are part of the family of Sedaris who would say that this is their home to sign their paper, sign their, their name on a piece of paper, as silly as that sounds. Well, why are we doing that? Are we doing that because the Bible says so? Well, no, we're not doing it because of that. We're doing it because primarily Jesus saw that primarily his disciples would experience life through committed relationships with one another. That the foundation of, of life and love and growth and encouragement happens in committed relationships to one another. But this is exactly what our culture pushes back against. Our culture says something along the lines of, if you commit yourself to someone else, you better be careful because you might not be able to achieve your goals in life. That's going to be pretty inconvenient for how you might want to recreate. That's going to be pretty inconvenient for how you have to hold their uncomfort at times. And, and so this, this notion of membership, we're going to strive for it because honestly, we think that if we just let our church go along the lines that the rest of culture is going and don't stand up and confront it, that we almost collude with culture, that we're almost complicit in allowing it to go on when Jesus' body, he always called his family to be so much more than that. 
So is church membership biblical? No, it's not. Is church membership theological? Kinda. But church membership, as we're conceiving of it, is missional. It's a product of us getting clarity of identity of who we are as a church. And so keep your eye out for that. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not willing to go in and, and have debates and discussions about that to get clear on what it means to be a member and all that jazz. We're going to have a whole membership class that'll be a, a Saturday morning and afternoon so that we can unpack some of those things and exactly what it means and all, all that stuff. And we'd love your thoughts on the front end of that as well. But this is a product of mission. This is how the church has always worked. Things happen outside in the church. We need to respond to them so that we might gain clarity. Okay, so this is why we're doing those new things here in Sedaris. So it's really an awesome opportune time that the Jerusalem Council comes up for us because we get to see them do that as well. Okay, all right, cool. So that's where we're going to focus on these questions, not the, that outcome, because honestly, we've been here for three and a half years now, and we said that 2018, this is going to be the year that we transition from establishing a church here in this city to thriving as a church here in this city. And we're honestly seeing that. I think we've collected 40 Connect cards since July. There's tons and tons of new people here at Sedaris, and welcome. And so this sermon is going to give us a great opportunity to get clear on who we are for you, for those of you who are new, and for those of you who are, have been coming to Sedaris for a while, feel free to throw up the amens, okay? This is not a church where that doesn't happen. So let's get into it, okay? Okay, so let's look at how uh, Peter responds in this Jerusalem council. The debate moves from Antioch and Syria. It comes up to Jerusalem, is what it says. Even though it's moving south, Jerusalem was higher in elevation. It comes up to Jerusalem. The debate exp explodes again, and then Peter stands up. Pick it up with me in verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So what has Peter said? He says, hey guys, he clearly refutes this notion that salvation is tied to things that we do. He says, hey, we've never been able to be saved that way as Jews. Why would you ask them to do that? That's, that is ridiculous. That is silly. And look at the response. And all the assembly fell silent. Has that ever happened to you? where you're in a debate with somebody and you present an argument and all of a sudden they are silenced? Yeah, me neither. <laughs> in fact, I'm usually the one silenced, I would say. How profound is this? Peter just, just shut up an entire assembly with this. He must have said something really, really significant. He silenced an entire assembly. What did Peter say? Why were they silenced? Well, they were silenced because he accused them of angering God. Well, it doesn't say that. Where did he say that? Well, that phrase in verse 10 right there, he says, why are you putting God to the test? It was a phrase that was very common in Jewish literature. You see it in the Exodus account of Moses bringing people out of Egypt and into the promised land. And essentially it became shorthand for you're angering God right now. 
This is when the, the Israelites would rebel. They'd say things like, oh shoot, Pharaoh's army is going to kill us as we're pinned against this Red Sea. Why have you done this, Moses? Moses would say, why are you putting God to the test? God, or, or Moses, you brought us out into the desert just to die? Why are you putting God to the test? You are working against what God is hoping to accomplish in this world. That's what Peter's saying. He brought the severity to it. There's a very sharp point. Now, why could he so confidently say this? Well, he so confidently said it because of missiology, something that he had experienced. You see it right there in verse, I guess it's in verse 7. Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made it a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the Lord. In the early days, what is he referring to? He's actually talking about the events in Acts 10 that Dave preached about, I think it was back in July. But the events in in Acts chapter 10 that happened a decade, probably a little bit more than a decade previously, he says, wait, this happened a decade ago. What will happen there? Well, kind of shorthand, broad brushstrokes by a series of, of visions that God brought about and events. God brought Peter to preach the gospel to Gentiles to a Roman centurion named Cornelius and his family, and as he's preaching to them about Jesus, everything that he did, that he died on the cross for forgiveness of sins, and one day he'll come back to judge the world and bring all of his people to himself, they believe it in their hearts. They believe it in their hearts, and before they can even speak out loud and proclaim that they believe, God baptizes them with the Holy Spirit. And a lot of commotion happens. We're not sure exactly what happened, but it seems to be something similar to what the apostles themselves experienced on the day of Pentecost when they were baptized by the Spirit. And so Peter's saying, by nothing that they did on their own, they, they never followed Jewish law. They couldn't even speak that they loved God out loud. God knew their hearts of faith. Right there in verse 8, and God who knows the heart bore witness to them and poured his Spirit on them. There is nothing that they could do This is rooted in missiology. And so Peter concludes, how do people belong? Well, through faith in Jesus, through just having faith. Now, many of you probably believe in justification by faith alone as a theological concept. Where does that come from? Right here. That's, it comes from missiology. All theology that you've ever heard is rooted in an experience of God's people bringing his message to the world. That's that's a big statement. Everything you've ever believed about God comes out of of God's mission in the world. Now, tuck that away. It's going to be important for how we understand uh, James's comments later as well, okay? So how do do we belong? We belong by justification, by faith, but, but not so fast. This is something that we can intellectually assent to, but sometimes we can lose. We can lose this notion of how we belong to the people of God very easily in the Christian life. So often we can relegate whether it's okay to have a relationship with God, okay to talk to God based on what you have done for him or haven't done for him. And that's completely reasonable because that's how we think of all of our other relationships in life. All of our other relationships. If someone ignores you repeatedly, if someone lashes out at you repeatedly, if someone doesn't listen to you repeatedly, what do you do with that person? Well, you're no longer friends with that person. (laughs) Even the nicest people among us are like, ah, I think I'll go find a different friend than you. But God's not like that. God says that no matter what you do, even though you, as long as you believe in me, we're great, and I'm here for you. The table of God is open for you. You can 
pull up a chair and have dinner with the people of God. That's how you belong. No matter what's happened, no matter what you've done, even that one thing that you haven't told anybody ever about, no matter what you've done, you can pull up a table, a seat at the table. The table of God is full of believing insurrectionists, you could say. So faith comes, or justification comes by faith, okay? So that's Peter's answer for how to belong, just by believing, okay? Now let's move on to James. He answers who we are and why, you're here, why we're here in a really beautiful way. If we grasp this, if we grasp this as a church, we'll continue to see God's blessing work uh, through us in this city. And that's why it's so crucial, okay? So, so let's go, uh, you can skip down, let's go, go to verse 12 again. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So Paul and Barnabas, they essentially stand up and they say, yep, just like Peter's experience of a decade ago, a little bit longer, we had this all the time. This is what our last year looked like from town to town to town to town. This is the, we had the same experiences that Peter had. And after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. So Simeon is, is uh, Peter's Jewish name. And James, as the leader of the church, does what every great leader uh, of a church does when they encounter missiology that's going to inform some theology. He says, let's make sure this checks out with what we know about Scripture to be true, with what we know about what God has already revealed to us, because it should go in line with that. All missiology goes in line with what God has already revealed to us. Okay, so that's what he says there. So let's read it. It's great. He points to Amos chapter 9. He says, after this, I will return. I will rebuild the fallen tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind or the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Now, we have a problem now, because we have already gone back 2,000 years to this text that we're reading right now, and now James is quoting something that's 750 years before that, so we have this little bit of a predicament of like, we have scripture within a scripture, within a scripture, within a scripture, then we have like inception happening, Bible version, okay, this is Bible inception, essentially, and, but we need, to, we need to really roll up our sleeves and get into this, because just like the movie, stuff that happens on the dream inside a dream inside a dream has implications for all on the on the surface level, okay? So, we're gonna go find Leonardo DiCaprio. Not a great joke, it's okay guys. Thanks for being here though. Thanks for being here. We have scripture within the scripture. Maybe it's a delivery, maybe it's a delivery. Dave, you, you can work with me later. Um, we, we, we have three questions that I'm gonna ask that we're gonna actually answer pretty quickly that'll help us find the meaning of what this Amos passage is all about that we might see what it, how, really how it bears on our lives today, okay? The first question is this. What is the meaning of Amos 9 in its original context? Second question is how does Amos 9 support what James just said? Third question, on that basis, what is the answer to who we are and why we're here? All right? All right, so what's the meaning of Amos 9 in its original context? Well, you'll see that verse 16 here in, in Acts 15 starts with an after this to make you ask the natural question, well, after what? Well, Amos 9, up to this point, up to where verse 16 starts, the first 10 verses in Amos 9 
are all about God's uh, proclamation of how he's going to judge his people and how he's going to extend his anger and wrath to them. Um, this is something that Amos is prophesying that is going to happen to Israel. It hasn't happened quite yet, but Amos says this is what's going to happen, okay? But then there's a shift. There's a shift in tone, and it moves from, from judgment and anger, it moves to hope. And that's where uh, James picks up the quote. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it. So Israel was going to be in ruins, and this eventually did happen to Israel. They were conquered by three nations over the course of about 100 years. Assyria was the first one. Babylon was the second one. Then Egypt came through. And you can remember all three of those because there's a Y right in the middle of each one of those names. There's a little seminary mnemonic for you. Assyria, Babylon, and Egypt. Um, so this happened, okay? And, the, and Israel went into ruins. And so what is, and, and Amos said, I'm going to rebuild it, or God's going to rebuild it. I will rebuild the tent of David. Well, the tent of David, that's a little strange. David didn't live in a tent. He lived in this enormous mansion. And he wasn't all about the recreational activity of camping, okay? That didn't exist back then. Uh, not a very safe activity to do. Um, so what is Amos talking about here? Some of your translations might say, I will rebuild the house of God. And Amos uses this word tent, so we don't misunderstand that he's talking about the four walls that David lived in, but that he's talking about his household. He's talking about his people. He's talking about the household of God. He's talking about the people of God. So after this, I will return, I will rebuild the people of God that have fallen. I will rebuild them. I'll be, rebuild their ruins. I will restore them as a people, okay? So that's what Amos is, not, Amos is saying. He's saying God is going to rebuild his people one day. And then verse 17, why is God doing this? So that, in fact, if you have a Bible and you have your pen, just write the word so right in front of that there. It's very clear. This is why God is rebuilding. So that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by your name. Even if you have like a Bible just that you picked up, write the so in there. You know, help, help the next reader out. You know, give them a little tip off. So that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, okay? So what Amos is saying is that one day God is going to rebuild his people so that the rest of humanity can know God. That's what Amos is saying. Okay, so how does that support what James just said? Well, James is saying that Peter is functioning just as he should. He is the restored people of God as a Jew. He is one of the restored people of God that is bringing the gospel to the Gentiles so that they can seek God. That's what we saw happen in Cornelius. This is what we saw Paul and Barnabas do in their missionary journey. This is exactly what is happening. Peter was once a ruined piece of the household of God, but God has rebuilt him, is what James is saying. Now, how did he do this? Through Jesus. Jesus showed up on the scene, and he appointed 12 disciples. Israel had 12 tribes. It was a clear reference to Jesus saying almost, I mean, this would have been pretty outlandish, probably one of the reasons why he was killed. I am the true Israel. If you believe the message that these 12 say, then you'll be united to true Israel. I mean, when you really understand that, it's no wonder why the church for 15 years was just focused on converting Jewish people, telling Jewish people about Jesus, and now we have this shift. But Peter is, a restored ruin, is one of the restored ruins of God because of Jesus. Jesus was the most ruined human there ever was. 
He was killed on the cross. He was whipped 39 times. Crown of thorn shoved on his head. He was, he was killed and put in the grave. But God, through his power, stepped into the grave and resurrected him and restored and rebuilt, resurrected, rejuvenated Jesus, rejuvenated a ruined Jesus. And all who put their faith in him experience likewise rejuvenation and rebuilding. And Peter, in going to the Gentiles, is fulfilling his purpose so that the remnant, the rest of mankind, may seek the Lord. Okay, so on that basis, we've done all this work to get right here today. Thanks for it. Thanks for sticking around. This is great. Um, inductive reasoning. We're all the way there. We've done all the work we need to do. On that basis, what is the answer to who we are and why we're here? Well, who are we? We are ruins. We are ruins. We are ruins that are being rebuilt by God. Why are we here? So that the rest of humanity might seek him, even all the Gentiles who are called by his name. Now that might confuse some of you. You might say like, we just talked about how Jews were the ruins. Why are you saying now that we are the ruins as well? 